This conference will now be recorded. Hey guys, welcome to the Appreciate Your Power podcast. Today I have an amazing William Stokes. He's a property developer. He's a CEO of Co-Space. He says he's occasionally funny. He's got his own podcast and he loves wine, coffee, and was it cars, was it? Was that the last one? I, I am into sports cars, yes. Sports cars, perfect. How are you doing anyway? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Good, good. So just to create a bit of context for everyone, um, tell us a bit more about your journey. So let's go back to like, who's the younger sort of 13, 14 year old William? What was he okay, like? Cool. Uh, yeah, so he, he was uh, totally different from the William today. It's probably the easiest answer. Um, like many people, I have my first kind of taste of entrepreneurship around that age. For me, it was selling um, triple x rated magazines at school along with cigarettes and those kind of things that was that was my entrepreneurial journey early days um but yeah i was you know i i was never i was never great at school i was never an academic guy i was always wanting to get you know hands-on get very practical so i always struggled in that school environment and that kind of showed with my attitude and my behavior which luckily mm. i have a very different outlook on life now um mm. but yeah around kind of 16 i kind of found my way um i realized what my passions were and i realized where my interests were i mm. co-founded my first business at 17. it went wrong by the time i was 18. Um, what was the first that, it, it was effectively what is now a dropship model so it was a dropship model before dropship model was the main thing and it was bringing electrical goods from china and selling them in the uk and at the time i didn't know too much about business i didn't understand margins i felt like a 10 percent margin you know at the, at the bottom was everything and that was fine i didn't realize that obviously you need to layer in staffing costs and all these things we didn't incorporate so we we never had any kind of incorporation and somehow we managed to get through so many what are now red flags that you would never get through um we were never getting sent up-to-date stock lists so we were selling stuff that wasn't actually in stock and having to go through the whole <laughs> refund process and losing money there was this whole kind of hurdle and what now know yeah. what i know now i should have found somebody that was in that space paid for them to mentor me or learn something or or gone and found mm -hmm. information this was kind of i don't know if it was pre-youtube i don't know if youtube was around then but if it was it wasn't the kind of aggregate of data that it is now um and we just didn't have the the skill set and we didn't know where to look for people to advise us so it kind of failed it took about nine months but it kind of failed um and it scared me off a bit and i, I went down an engineering route so the one thing i always cared about at school was engineering my granddad was an mm -hmm. engineer on both sides um so i went down that route started as a designer and I worked my way up to project manager. I worked for a large energy company that's like 17th biggest company in the world. Um, mm. So I had a load of corporate experience. And alongside that, I kind of got chatting to my uncle who many in the property sector will know Mark Stokes about property and about this whole kind of development world and, and getting a, a feel for that. And one of the things that happened was I was made redundant from the energy company. Mm. And at that point I was like, oh no, what do I do? And I was already looking at property, but I didn't feel like I was ready at that stage. So I said, okay, well, great, I'll find something to do. I ended up finding a guy, uh, Nick, who I know really well, and joining his business and helping him go from 50 to kind of 160 people over a year and, uh, you know, massive expansion. And it was a year to the day, I think, pretty much that I left and I got involved in the property side with my uncle and, and did that until April last year. So you came in and, and you focused on, on building the business what are the similar things you you did like you took a business from 50 to 100 that's that's a huge jump so talk us through the process and talk us through some of the things that you did in order to grow that company yeah so 
There was multiple things. The first thing that I always do is I, I like to get very hands-on and feel where the issues are. So whether that's going and spending time with the guys actually on the shop floor versus the guys that are actually in the office. And one of the things that was the biggest drainer of time was every morning we'd have this meeting and it would drag on for like an hour, uh, sorry, half an hour, 45 minutes. It would drag on. And I, I observed it and it was about a month in when I said, you know what, we're not going to sit down in these meetings, we're just going to stand. And those meetings became 10 minutes every morning. It's streamlined. And then I went and found what were the issues with the production staff? You know, did they know what they were working on? Well, actually, they were being told by one guy who had it on a clipboard. Well, great. <laughs> it's so funny because I remember it and I, I could not have done it better. I said, I'm going to buy a whiteboard. And I went online and I brought a whiteboard. It was a big two-meter whiteboard. And so I'm going to put it up in the factory so everybody knows what's being done, or what's coming in, what's going out, the whole process. Everyone can see it. And I drew four dots and drilled it and stuck it on. And one of the guys came and put a level on it and it was perfectly straight. And you couldn't even write it, it was perfect. And from that day, I just recorded everything that was coming in, going out, what needs to be done, so everybody knew what the priority was. And at the time, everyone was relying on one guy giving out the information and suddenly everybody had the information. And it was about streamlining the process. And off the back of that, we then won a major contract with a, a big company that we've been trying to get a contract with for years but they, mm -hmm. they hadn't looked at us based on processes and systems. We now had that in place. So we were awarded a contract with them and that, that boosted the turnover about 30%, I think. I think it was about 30%. So wow. the business was able to explode based on putting in systems in place. And it wasn't just me. There were some older guys there and there was another guy that joined and we kind of joined forces. He was a younger guy as well. And we kind of, there was loads of us within a group that built these systems and put things in place, but it enabled us to grow very quickly. So how about for all the guys who are listening in, what advice would you give them in terms of streamlining or getting systems in place? Because whether you're a startup property business or whether you're a tech company, regardless of who you are, there needs to be some level of streamlining or systems in place. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I wish I'd done that sooner and I wish I'd seen the value in processes and in operations manuals. You know, from anything that you do day to day, make sure you've got a process in place. You know, if you, uh, the, one of the prime examples was is member onboarding, right? onboarding a new member onto the co-space system back end is very easy for me to do i can do it in minutes for anybody else coming into the business it's a long-winded process because you have to learn it all so i went through and documented it and screenshotted it and did it step by step so somebody can take that process and know how to do it within 10 15 minutes and the value in that is huge because you save so much time and it enables you to get rid of things and know that people are doing it right i think most mm -hmm. entrepreneurs and most founders suffer from the same problem which is what i did which is you think well, I can do something at 100%, so I'll do it. But actually, letting somebody else do it at 95% is acceptable because you can go and do things that are worth 10 times the value at 100%. I think that's mm. the key, is, is learning to let go and building the processes and, and just doing it. Just everything that you do, just, okay, great, I'm just going to make a note of this and the step-by-step -step process. It's the reason why, and I always go back to it, when you're at school, I don't know if you ever did it, where you have to document the steps to make a cup of tea. Yeah, and when you actually go into it, you realize that there's like, you think in your head, oh, there's maybe like four or five steps. And when you break it out, there's like 15. And that is the exact summary of business. You know, the things that you do, you can see it in your head and it's very, very easy. But actually in reality, there's more to it and you just fill the gaps in between. So now you need to actually document all those pieces. I guess that helps with improving things as well, because then once it's on paper, you can then look at it and think, okay, how can I improve this or make this better? Absolutely. So yeah um no, i definitely see the value in systems but i think 
if you know what if people can't invest in the tech or what if people can't invest in in some of the systems that people use today like there's so many complicated softwares now there's like people are automating everything you know do you is it worth investing in that level of tech for people it depends on your business i mean in terms of systems i'm very i'm, I'm very open with what i use i have obviously mm -hmm. word excel all these kind of typical things i use evernote evernote is brilliant mm -hmm. i use dropbox so everything's on dropbox they're fairly cheap. Evernote, Dropbox. Um, I use Podio, but I use the free account for task management. And then the main one is I use Office R&D, which is an industry-specific system for CoSpace. But in mm -hmm. total, you know, Office R&D is the most expensive one. But in total, for the personal systems, you're looking at no more than 25 quid a month. So that's mm -hmm. for Evernote, Dropbox, you know, your Microsoft Office, Outlook, whatever, that entire suite. And you can mm -hmm. just, there's so much information that you can put into a Word document or into a, an Evernote and share it. You can task manage everything in Podio to make sure that you're doing things. You know, the Office R&D works, but it's very operational. It's very tracks the occupancy of a site and the income and the revenue and stuff, which I don't need to be necessarily involved in. There's, there's systems out there that you can get on free trials and that you can use that can make you just one or two percent more productive that boost it in the long term. Mm. So, so, so moving on nicely, like what, how did you go about starting a co-working business? Because, you know, we, we've got companies like WeWork out there, we've got all these big businesses that are in that space, you like Regis, you got WeWork, you've got all the other ones. Why did you choose to go into the co-working space uh, and was it, and how easy was it for you? Yeah, so the answer, well, okay, the best way to answer it is obviously I got involved in property with my uncle. Um, the property that I was involved in with was heavily commercial to resi. It was about 5% of new build. It was mainly commercial to resi. So it's taking office blocks, um, two thirds under PD, one third that was typically grade two listed and needed full planning. We liked the grade two listed because most people got scared away from it. So we mm -hmm. developed around 150, 250 apartments a year as a rough kind of guide. And I was looking at commercial units on the high street going, well, actually, at the time, there wasn't going to get planning permission for apartments. You might do on the uppers, but you needed some form of change of use. And councils, as you know, just absolutely love mixed use schemes. So I was looking at going, well, what could be done? And at the time, I was watching the fight that was in central London in terms of the office space market, as well as looking at commercial units going, well, I think there's an opposite use class for this. And I was a member of WeWork, it's funny you mention it, um, one of their old street sites. And I kind of got this love for it and realized that there was nothing around me where I was. And I remember sitting in a coffee shop with, with a friend of mine and we said, let's just do something. Let's just set something up. And we ended up setting up what became the test bed for CoSpace, which was mm -hmm. a small site with, you know, 25 members, co-working, bit of office space, that kind of thing. And I was working from home. So it worked really well for me to have somewhere to work. Uh, and that's what really led me into it. And it was off the back of that that I then got chatting Valley and we met and said, okay, well, there's actually a model here. And if you scale this up, this could actually mean this much here. Um, mm. And we said, right, you know, we spent probably a year and a half figuring out how we would deliver it, researching the areas, creating the assets in terms of brand and the entire piece. Cause I realized that it was all about brand. It wasn't about the, the, the difference between a co-working space and a serviced office space versus a business center is all the branding. So, we spent time doing that. And then at that point we said, right, let's do it. And that was August, 2018. We said, okay, great. We've done all this initial prep. Let's go do it. And then mm -hmm. that led me to get really busy that in April 19, I made the decision to leave the development side in terms of the commercial to just focus on the commercial office development.
So when it comes to, uh, you talk about you find it and you kind of make them in areas where there's not much going on or there's less co-working spaces. Is it still profitable for you to do something, especially something that's more commercially focused in an area which is more quiet? For example, if you rather than anything in the sort of central London area, you, you go on the outskirts of M25. Is that actually valuable for you guys? Yeah, it's finding the markets. It's finding the markets that are warm and it's finding the markets where there's a undersupply and b you i mean in regional places where we're looking so for instance we're buying a building in wakefield right and the only market the only kind of competition there is regis and regis brand loyalty is fairly low they have a product offering that has a market that caters for but we're kind of this middle tier very professional focused so if we worked up here and regis is down here we're kind of slap bang in the middle which is a good kind of point of where we want to be um in those areas, buildings are much cheaper to buy. Their fit-outs pretty much the same no matter where you go, but the building's cheaper to buy. Your your rents are lower because you'll buy it in a prop co and you'll lease it to the opco. Your rents are typically lower, so therefore your desk rates can be lower, and it's reflective of that. So it's reflective on the area, but it's finding an area where, you know, the first thing we do is we speak to councils and we speak to business groups and say, what's the demand? Where are people wanting to be? We speak to agents and go, what are the typical suites people are looking for? Is it six, tens, twelves? And we'll design the space around where the actual demand is. There's all these pieces that we coordinate and pull together. Um, and the, the understanding fundamental is making sure we have a strong enough margin and making sure that margin is very conservatively modelled. You might get 95% occupancy in London, but you're not going to get that in somewhere like Wakefield. You need to be able to work mm. at 75% occupancy. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. So... So you guys have kind of seen a, a market that nobody else has really touched. Um, do you guys use your own finance? Is it, you know, do you find investors per plot? Do you guys, how, how does the finance work for you guys at the minute? Yeah, blended mix. We started with a range of founder funding. So me and Ali both put the kind of seed capital into the business to grow it. Around May last year, we actually went out and closed the seed funding round or what was the kind of post seed funding round after founder funding um, from one private investor called Paul, who's now a shareholder in the business. Um, Paul has no day-to-day -day operational input into the business. He, he gives advice and so on, but he doesn't get involved. He's very much on a beach in France somewhere, and that's that's the lifestyle he lives. Um, but he supports us, enabling us to get to where we need to get. And for that, he owns 20% of the business. So most of the, I mean, the site acquisition is paid for by Paul. Um, most mm -hmm. of the funding to date has come from Paul. We're doing a funding round now where we're looking at bringing in some other investors, um, and that's to enable growth after these two sites and to take it forward it's generally a blended mix um, we're chatting to funds and to banks that are saying look once you've got four or five six sites we'll then write you an institutional deadline that you can then go and use it's just getting to that process okay so so for anyone that's looking to raise investment for any sort of commercial business what advice would you give them of one finding the investor and then two presenting something to them yeah so, I mean, the first thing is making sure that you have a strong supporting evidence for your income. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you're punching a desk rate of 500 pound, but the market average there is 300 pound, is that achievable? Probably not. The second mm -hmm. is making sure that you can model it on three alternatives. What's your break even and understanding your break even because the fundamental, the difference in this business model versus something in tech is your overheads are very low, but then they scale up as your income does, you know, you need more service space, you go and get more, you need more staff, so you go and get more. Whereas for us, we have a very fixed overhead and we have to make that little bit of cream on the top. Um, that's, that's the model. So it's it's understanding it and it's getting three years of accounts at 
a really strong EBITDA margin to then go, okay, well, look, we've shown that this actually works. Here's how the margins are and here's what drives the value because the value is generally a multiplier of EBITDA and then taking it forward that way. Mm, okay, so you guys have kind of brought two different worlds together. You've kind of gone from, you know, being in the property space, which is, you know, there's so much of a community online within property, but then have also kind of geared it towards the tech industry or kind of found the investors or even the community that you guys might have in there will be more tech. Um, what's, the, what's the vision for this going forward? So the idea is to get to 20 to 30 sites. Um, we mm. want a blended mix of if you said 20 sites, we would want to own 10. So 10 of them, we're the landlord. We own them in the prop co, and then they're let to the opco. Another five we'll do on a straightforward FRI lease, um, and, and generally the kind of deal that Reading and Stevenage both are on. And then another five we'll operate on management agreements. So it will be us operating the space and charging a management fee. That gives us a diverse range of income lines and different levels. Um, and then when we get to 20 to 30 sites, we'll then either go and raise a huge chunk of capital to grow and expand either into Europe or into different markets, or we'll likely sell out to a private equity firm on the Opco side or another operator based in London or whatever that wants to expand um, and just remain the landlord. That's the kind of long-term play. Okay, so okay, so here's the thing. Most people, when they're building a business, they think about keeping that business for a lifetime. Why would you guys get to the stage where you've built it and sell it? Why is that something that you would do rather than just holding on to something which is producing you uh, an income? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, the reason will be market position. That, you know, there is a fight in London and London is heavily becoming saturated. And at some point, those guys will come out into the regions. And if we're in a position to go, look, we've done this. You guys don't need to go and do the work. You can acquire us there'll be a lot of value and a lot more value in us at that stage than if they were to go down the route of opening 20 sites. It suddenly brings down our value. Um, the operations side is great and it's something we can do in the short term, but in the long term, it's it's about having the property business side and not the operating business side. It's almost like having a restaurant and owning the building that the restaurant's in and where you probably mm -hmm. want to get to is owning the building the restaurant's in and having someone else operate the restaurant. So, so it's like the Mahomes kind of idea in, in, in many senses at the same time, it's like a franchise. Yeah, exactly that. Perfect. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self going back? If you had to do this all over again and you were, you had to go back for, let's say, for another five years, what, what advice would you give to yourself? Yeah, very good question. Um, I think the first one would be trust in the process. Understand that it is a process. And if you keep making the steps forward, you'll eventually get to where you want to get to. Uh, and the second one is don't think you're going to do it as quick as you're going to do it. Because I came into this thinking in two, three years time, I'm going to be miles ahead. And it's now been nearly six years um, and we're starting to make some good progress now. But it took a lot longer than I thought it would. So I think it's, a, it's, it's understanding that there is a process and, and following that process and then also not wanting to rush it. Tell us about a time that went something wrong in the business. So, you know, you can't, it can't all just be sunshine and rainbows within the co-working business. What are some of the things that went wrong for you or that some of the obstacles you had to face? Yeah, I mean, the first one was launching just a co-working business um, and trying to find a market to fill that. You know, we, we tested the market and we decided there was a good enough market for co-working, but there was a bigger market for service office and we didn't go down that route. And it was around the kind of nine month mark that we realized we were getting a lot of inquiries for office space. So we started putting some glass office space within the co-working and they let out immediately. So it's, it's being able to pivot and to change the building use as needed. And the market will change. 
off the back of this, we might not have as much interest in office space, but we might have a lot in co-working. It's being able to pivot, and we didn't do that day one. We've now put business in a position that we can do that. Um, and also, learning from other people. There's there's nothing new that somebody hasn't done. So you can learn the bits that they've done and learn what they've done wrong, rather than have to go make all the errors yourself. Um, I wish that I had, in the early days, lent more on people who had been there and not been so much of a oh, I just want to do it to prove to myself that I can do it, to prove to everyone I can do it. There's no issue with accepting help from someone now and then. So how about personally? What are some of the personal challenges that you had to go through to kind of build this business? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess the, the first one was figuring out where we were going to get funding from and how we were going to structure that early days. Because me and Ali had a little bit of funding, but to go and do Reading and Stevenage, the amount of money that was needed was nowhere near what we had. Um, and luckily, Ali's background is finance, and he's involved in that world. So he kind of guided me on that process. Um, but that that was that was kind of a, a stress point of okay, well, will somebody see the value in it that we see? And the thing that I learned is most people, and especially Paul as an investor, he's more invested in me and Ali. He gets the business model, understands the fundamentals, but he invests in us and what we're trying to create and the vision behind it. Um, so I think that's probably one of the personal ones. The second one is is having, you know. I, I have an uncle that is very heavily in property development and is very well known in property development. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're not super close or as close as people think we are. So it's trying to get over the fact that your last name is obviously your last name and that actually you've kind of built things yourself and not done it off the back of family names. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not something that I've done. Interesting, because I actually didn't know that he was your uncle till I, uh, till, till you mentioned it. So it's, it's actually interesting that you've gone and, and built your own sort of name and your own brand, and you've kind of gone into a separate business. Talk to me about how you went about building your own personal brand as an individual to try and separate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So it's weird because when I first got into the whole kind of entrepreneurship world and so on, I was so big on oh, I want a personal brand, I want all the followers, I want to do this, I want to do that, and I set myself this kind of map and. I got you know frustrated when it wasn't happening and the less that I spent not necessarily focused but the less that I cared about having huge amounts of followers the more people actually started to follow me because it was more authentic I wasn't just making content and putting it out there for the sake of doing it it became more mm. authentic um, so I think that's probably one of the key points the the second point is just being very true to who you are and what you're trying to create and not deviating from that um, and that's resonated with a lot of people. You know, a lot of people have seen my journey over the last six, yeah, five, six years and have felt like they've been a part of that because we've, you know, I've, I've met with people and we constantly meet up and so on. So I think that's helped. I, I would rather have a very small circle of followers that I react with and engage with on a regular basis and we can learn things from each other than a million people looking at me and not knowing who they are. I've kind of gone mm -hmm. that opposite way and it's then spread out. You talk, I think there's this whole sense of, uh, I believe in every business, especially within the co-working space, there's this whole sense of community within that environment. How do you make sure that within each of the, the sites that you guys have, that you still have this element of culture and community to be to build a business, but also to build a brand? Yeah, so, I mean, the culture from the brand perspective, me and Ali have no experience in that. So we have an amazing design team that work for the business and have delivered that entire piece. And they make sure that everything is in brand and delivers into the culture. For us, the culture has always been about community and that's what co-working spaces are about. 
And for us, that's all, all back to the design piece. It's designing the space to make sure that it flows in the right way. It's making sure that those informal conversations are happening and people understand who's in the space. You know, every office is a glass fronted wall so you can see what's happening. You know, it might be filmed so you can't see any particular information, but you can see what's happening. It's not just stud wall with a door and you don't know who's in that office. We want it to be so everybody knows who everybody is and everybody interacts. It's, it's all driven by community. <laughs> and how can people apply that whole community aspect to their business? Especially if those who are in property that might not be in co-working, but that might just be in property. How can they apply that co-work, that sort of community idea or that community concept? Well, I think community is in everything. It's in your design team. It's in the people that you have around you. You know, do you use one particular architect who completely understands the scheme that you're trying to deliver and enables you to go and rinse and repeat almost and, and carry on going and have that cookie cutter model? It's in mm -hmm. the people that you have around you and that that power team, not to use the term power team, but in everybody that's around you and enables your growth and supports you. Because the reality is that I don't think anybody is self-made. I think everybody is created. So they might be self-created, but they're made by the people that are around them that support them. If you can give mm -hmm. something to someone and they can give something to you, then that's a fair balance. And you create that community of people around you. I have a, a, a huge community of people that advise me and guide me. And when I look at something and think, oh, I can't do this in the right way, I know that there's somebody there that has the answer. So going on to the, the whole thing about people, right? Network, you've kind of said it's important. How much networking do you still do now compared to what you did before? Oh, uh, I used to do a lot more networking. Many will know I, we used to run Brooklyn's PPN. So we used to do the monthly PPN networking at Mercedes-Benz World. Um, that was that was pretty big. That was 200 people there every month almost. I've kind of not dipped out the circuit. I probably go to one or two networking events per month, but I'm quite selective in terms of what, what ones I go to. Um, and the reason being is that we're just so busy with what we're doing that I'll look at the clock and be like, oh, I need to go to a networking event at six. And it's now 10 to six. That's generally what happens. We get so busy. But I do try and stay in the in the circle and, and catch up because there's a lot of people I know and I, I always learn new things. I'm always surprised by how much I actually do learn. You know, someone mm. mentions something or does an introduction to someone and suddenly it's, you know, I've got introductions that I'm acting on now that I was introduced to four years ago. And at the time we said, let's stay in touch and see if there's opportunity. And now there is opportunity. So I think which leads on to perfectly into my next question. How do you maintain these relationships? Because, you know, especially in networking, we meet so many people. We probably have like close to a thousand business cards at home or wherever it is. How do you maintain those relationships? Uh, how, how do you go about doing that? Mm. Okay, cool. So I don't know about anyone else, but what I tend to do is there's certain people that I follow on Facebook and when they post something out, I like it and I make an effort to comment on it and say, you know, great mm. scheme, Michael, really like what you're doing. Um, hope all is well. So you're just kind of in that in that mind and, and people still remember you. Um, the people that I have met and have resonated really well with, um, a good one being my really good friend, Matt. You know, I, I met Matt when he was working for a fund in London and now he's doing some amazing developments. And, you know, he brought Grant Cardone to the UK and he's doing amazing things. We constantly stay in touch. You know, every time I'm over that way, I message him and we'll meet up for lunch. I will send him the occasional voice note every now and then say, hope you're well, just want to say, you know, things are manic, but hope you're well, hope you're keeping busy. I do things like that. Voice notes are great because it only takes two minutes. You know, I just pick up my phone and I can say, hope you're really well, hope everything's working out. If you need anything, give me a shout, but I'm always here and it's, and it's done. Um, it's, it's through do that you, way. 
do you schedule that in your diary? Do you have some sort of like system to manage all those? Because like you know, you're not talking about a handful of people. You're talking probably more than you're probably talking more than 30 to 40 people. Like you're talking in those numbers. So it's like, how do you how do you, do you just flick through your phone and just randomly do it? Yeah, it, it tends to be people that I resonate with more than anything. It's not you know, I have a very small circle of close friends, but I have a very vast circle of of that outer network. And it's people that I resonate with that I tend to do it with. And I don't, I don't need reminding of who they are now. I just know who they are and they're very active on social. So I see their things and I engage with it and I share it. It generally tends to be that process. Mm -hmm. There is probably people that I forgot and probably need to send a message to. Um, but I, that I'm more about what can I give to somebody and, and everybody that I speak to knows this. If they need something, give me a shout. You know, if you need me to introduce you to someone, just give me a shout. It's done. I'm very mm -hmm. much that way minded. So people know so they can come to me. What's, what's important to you when it comes to having someone in your sort of close circle? What's important to you as an What sort of values or characteristics do you look for as an individual? Mm. Yeah, very good question. Um, the first one's integrity, which I think is a very common one. Uh, authenticity, you know, um, openness. You know, I like the guys, and I have really good friends who most of my friends have their own businesses or things like that. And the ones that talk about their struggles and their pitfalls are the ones that I resonate most with because they're the ones that are fully open about it. The ones that are going, oh, it's great, we're smashing it. I'm always a bit wary of, because business is never like that, ever. Mm -hmm. it's, it's peaks and troughs. So I, I get on really well with the people that are like, well, actually, I've got this struggle here, but I think I can get overcome it this way, and we end up chatting about it and things like that. Um, so I think it's integrity and, and authenticity, 100%. And Absolutely. The One of the questions that I, I try and, and focus on in this in, in the podcast is to get people to talk about why they do what they do. So is there an element to a vision around making a difference? Is there some level of purpose that you have or some level of why that you have? If so, what is that? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, I didn't expect you to go this deep, so awesome. Um, the, the fundamental immediate goal is to change the workspace environment. I don't like the classic, and I saw it firsthand in a corporate environment. It was very corporate, suspended ceilings. It was soul crushing. And I think what we are finding now in the flexible workspace and the design-led spaces is that these spaces are, are merging with work and home. You can almost, you know, a prime example is I use a funder called LendInvest, and, and many who are in property will know LendInvest. They funded us on a deal. And I went to their office, and it was 6 o'clock on a Friday when we'd finished this meeting. And there were still guys sat at their desk with pints in their hand carrying on working. And the reason why is that it doesn't feel like an office. And their office is amazing, right? And it doesn't feel like it. So I wanted to be a key part of that and delivering that. My long-term goal is to take, and it's part of the reasons why I see us selling the operations side, I want to get into health tech. So I'm really into health tech. I read a lot about healthcare and the way it's mm. going. And I have this vision that, you know, if you imagine life in your later years, when you get to 70, 80, it starts to go downhill slightly. And I have this vision mm -hmm. that we could eradicate 90% of all the health issues that we have so that we live a full life until the last day. Like there's no health issues. We don't have issues with walking. We don't have issues with you know, whatever it is. Um, and a prime example is there was this, this tech that came out. It was about 2016. And basically what it did, they tried to get funding for about five years and couldn't get funding. And what they did was if somebody had a car accident, it sounds morbid, but bear with me. Somebody had a car accident. You have four hours to harvest the organs before they go mm. bad and can't be used. And they created this tech that enables you to incubate the heart or, or do whatever you do to it and extend it to 24 hours. And the amount of lives saved from the extra 18 hours is incredible. Mm. 
and they didn't get funding because there was no financial upside. It was all um, humanitarian. And they, they found the financial upside now, but that was what the lag was. And what I want to do is invest in those businesses that are struggling to get funding because they can benefit humanity. Sitting on cash isn't my interest. It's actually using it to benefit. So that's my long, long-term goal. My short-term goal is to, to improve workspace and to improve the people's mindsets of when they go to the office that they don't think, oh, it's another day at the meaningless job. It's actually, oh, this is really cool and I'm inspired. So, so that's amazing. I, lo I love the vision. I love everything behind it. How do you come about defining your purpose so clear? Because it sounds like you've got it very clear in your head and you, you probably think about it more often than, than most people. But how do you get to that stage where your purpose is very clear in your head? Yeah, well, I saw it firsthand with family. I mean, my mum has really bad bipolar, so she's very mood swingy. Um, um, my, my, my nan on my mum's side is, is quite ill in her later years. So I saw all these things and I, I started researching things and realizing that there is potential outcomes in the future where we can eradicate certain things, maybe not so much the bipolar side, but on other areas. So that, that was why. But I, I remember when I got started, the fundamental thing for me was I wanted to get away from where I came from. I grew up on a council estate and never wanted to go back to that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to have enough money to look after myself, my family moving forward. And then you get to a certain point where you actually realize that whatever it is is driving you is something more. And what is that bigger thing? What is it you want to do? What is the impact? And the, the more you get into it, the more you realize that actually the guys that are making a huge impact have just been very regimented about what they've done. And they've always kept that vision. And that it doesn't matter where you come from, you can make an impact. And you, you're told that when you're young and you almost don't believe it. You almost watch it and until it starts happening to you and you start getting some level of success, you realize, oh, actually, I can come from nothing and create all this. So actually, how far can I take it? Um, I think that's the big thing that drives me now. I'm always trying to prove to myself and say, well, actually, can we go to the next step? Can we go further? Can we go further? Well, we've got to this stage. Let's go to the next one. And the negative of that mm. is, and I wrote a post about it, is I'm rarely satisfied. I'm always looking at the next thing and I don't stop enough to celebrate certain bits. So, so you said you're kind of always looking for that next thing. How do you sort of maintain balance in other areas of your life? You're talking, you're talking relationship, you're talking all the other things in social. How do you maintain that balance while being a business? Because it's it's obviously a challenge that we have within uh, within business, and a lot of entrepreneurs have this. So, how how do you maintain that balance? Yeah, the, the work life balance just basically merges. It merges into one. Um, I'm a big fan of time blocking. So if you go into my calendar, even to sleeping, even to reading, even to eating lunch, everything's blocked into my diary. And I do that as a regiment every week. So on every, every Sunday night, I plan my week. So I know where I need to be, what, what's happening and where I'm doing. And everything just merges. I don't, I don't have this work or this life that's separate. Um, it all just merges and I just move forward. And I know at the start of every week, I have to achieve this, this and this, whether that's in person or whether that's it, you know, in, in the office or whatever. Um, and I just constantly move forward to make sure that those bits are being done. I don't try and separate the two. Um, I don't think as a founder you can do that. I think if you work for an organization, it's very easy to leave the office at five or half five and not worry too much. But for me, it's constantly on my mind. You know, I have a notepad at the side of the bed because I'll wake up in the night and I'll think I need to do that. And I'll write it down and then it's gone and I'm back to sleep. So I, mm. I, I just merge the two, but I balance it very well, I think.
That's good to hear. That's good to hear. And I think this is a conversation that most people don't have because they're like, you know, we all have this sort of thing around hustle and work hard and put the hours in. And it's just like, it's getting to that stage where, like, you know, like once you've been in business more than five years, you get to that stage where you stop burning out and you start, you start hating what you're doing because there's just, you just, you kind of living in the motion. So I, I appreciate yeah. you sharing that. The other thing I want to talk about was your mindset around money. It seems like you're very focused on, on getting something done or getting somewhere or improving the business. What's your mindset around money? Yeah, so I see money as an enabler. It's not, it's funny because you always think of that quote. I mean, I, I was always told it growing up, right, that money is the root of all evil and money doesn't buy happiness. And mm. yet I've never met a rich person or a wealthy person that has said those words. Everybody that said those words to me either has a lack of money or has a negative stigma against money. Um, they've never had the positive mindset. So the more that I spoke to people that do have money, the more I've realized that they almost respect it and they understand that it, it is a currency to unlock opportunities, whether that's business opportunities or personal opportunities. You know, whether your vision is to travel the world or whether it's to build a business and create an impact, money is the fundamental driver in everything, no matter what happens in the world, it's the fundamental driver. If you focus on just creating loads and loads of money I don't think it will necessarily come and there's obviously areas where it does but the fundamental is having a long-term vision that is then bringing the money it's delivering a solution and then that brings the money as opposed to focused on just getting the money does that make sense yeah no I totally agree how do you stay emotionally disconnected how do you like emotionally disconnect yourself from your business or from money in general so how do you like for example a lot of people get emotion because it is a very personal thing business it's a very sort of we hold on to it there's obviously a lot of baggage that we might be carrying from when you're younger there's there's lots of things going on there's lots of factors at play so how do you how do you emotionally disconnect yourself from business yeah i think i i mean i tend to ground myself i mean right now i'm sat in my uh, study at home and above me which you can't see i have a vision board with all the things that I want to achieve in the next kind of mm -hmm. 10 years. So I a focus on what I'm trying to achieve and I recognize that I'm not there yet. But on the flip side of that, and I try not to dwindle on it too much, but I always think about where I came from. And I think about the mindset that I was in five years ago or you know 10 years ago when 10 years ago, you know, my goal was to earn 30 grand a year. That was literally, I thought if I get there, that's me successful. That's my pinnacle. And now mm -hmm. I, and that was working in an engineering career. And now I look at it and go, well, actually my goal is to, to create this and generate this and then that leads to the financial piece whatever that is i know that the money will be there i just need to focus on delivering the solutions um so i think i ground myself in the sense of where i've come from and where i'm trying to get to and i accept that i'm in the middle now and although the money is flowing now actually if i keep delivering the solutions to get to where we want to get to the money will be there but as i mentioned before it's about what is the purpose of the money just sitting on millions in the bank doesn't interest me it's actually making benefits and making it work for you whether that's buying a portfolio of properties that you then put into a trust and you know that your kids and your kids kids are going to be able to live off that wealth it's something that's enduring and going investing in healthcare startups or tech businesses that are trying to make an impact in the world and enabling someone else that's in my position now to have that growth and to be able to do the next thing that that, that excites me more i think about myself when i'm 40 45 sitting in front of a screen like this with someone my age that wants to then set out to do something else to change the world and thinking i remember being in that journey mm, oh wow you how old are you if you don't want me asking 27 27 now 27. 28 nearly yeah you've done you've done an incredible amount of work in a very short space amount of time what are some of the habits that you had to one get rid of but what are the new habits that you had to then create for yourself yeah cool uh so i used to be very 
pessimistic, I think, and now I'm very optimistic. Um, I focus on the, the positives as opposed to the negatives. I have a, you can see it here, I have a planner called a time book where I basically right. break down my week and my day. My day is into half hour slots, so I know that I need to be very regimented and I make sure that I stick strictly to the things that I need to do within certain times. Um, I'm very much focused on the output of the day, you know, whether that takes me five hours or eight hours, I won't just start tackling things. I have to be very structured. Uh, I wake up every morning at half five. At the minute, I've been waking up at six because I don't have the commute, but I generally wake up at half five. I'm very regimented about working out. I never saw the value in working out or looking after my health as much as I do now. But now mm -hmm. I understand that if you get your mind right and your, your physical right, then the rest, it enables you to, to go forward. Um, so I think I've just become very regimented in the in the aspects of my life. And regiment is probably not the right term, but I, I've understood that the routines are needed and that when they're in place, they can really benefit and help. Okay. No, I love that. I love that. I think it's, it's the thing is, what, you know, you've, you've gone and done something from a very young age. You've obviously learned very quickly. Young entrepreneurs tend to struggle, especially with this whole idea around age. Like, you know, yeah. it, it does age kind of, has that ever bothered you? And if so, what advice would you give to someone that is worried about their age, especially in the world of trying to raise investment or property or finance? Yeah, it, it did early days when I came into this, when I was 22, especially when I started at 17, age was a big stigma. And even at 22, 23, age was a big stigma. But the thing is that the generational shift is changing now. You know, I look at guys that are 18, 19 now, and I think, wow, these guys are miles ahead of where I was at that age. So I, I, I mm. think it is very much shifting. And there's a lot of proof now that, you know, the entrepreneurs that were 19 back you know, 10, 15 years ago are now getting to that older age and that you've seen their huge amounts of success and you're valuing the input of those younger generations more. Over the last five years, I've seen that shift. Um, so I think it's more about the experience, you know, I come back to, I love quotes. And one of my favorite quotes is, have you got one year of experience? Or, you know, 40 years of experience, or you're the same year repeated 40 times. And never value how much you can learn in a year or two years that can get you into a different position. I, I think that's absolutely key. Anybody coming into this should just recognize that there is a playbook. And the guy that's been doing it for 40 years probably has four years of solid experience. And you're not as far behind him as you think. And if you put in that extra 10%, you'll catch them up quick because the compound effect is so much bigger. Oh, wow. I love that mindset. I love that approach. In terms of, in terms of what you see, where do you see sort of co-working going? And, and that's probably the last sort of work-related question. Where do you see the whole co-working or business or even the arrival of co-living? Where do you see that business or that industry going? Yeah, so I think I think co-working is going to boom post this COVID-19. Um, I think what we're going to see is, you know, especially for us, we target professional sectors, you know, accountants, lawyers, solicitors, these kind of guys that need a professional, flexible workspace. Mm. And I think you've got firms in central London with 500 people in the building and they've always gone, well, we can't have our employees work from home or our team work from home because it doesn't work. And now they've been forced to. And now they've realized, actually, these guys are productive. They actually do work. And why are we dragging everybody into the city when they could probably just come in two days a week? So those 20 guys coming in from Reading, let's have an office in Reading. Those 20 guys coming in from um, Bristol, let's have an office in Bristol, from Brighton, wherever. Wherever they're bringing them in, let's have satellite offices and we can now use Zoom conference facilities to enable us to chat and to engage and things like that. I think we're going to see this shift and we're going to see that boom. Now, the lag will be the fact that people are working from home and that 
you know, I don't know if you ever worked from home, but it's great for the first six months. After that, it's pretty mundane. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. And that's where the co-working, the community piece comes from. Um, so I think we will see people that are working from home now and in six months' time go, well, actually, the kitchen table doesn't work. The dog barks halfway through my calls. The kids are running around this entire piece. And they'll go to co-working. Because the fundamental societal need for community and for that, you know, hierarchy of needs, the community piece is still very much there and it still will be there. It's why co-living and build to rent schemes with communal breakouts will be so key. It's just going to go that way. It's why the collective, I don't know if you've been to collective in London, the residence, yeah, it's yeah. why it works so well. Beautiful, beautiful. That was more of a sort of a personal question for me because it's like I'm trying to get into the, as well as being a property developer, I'm trying to get into the co-living space now and trying to create yeah. unique ways of adding value to, to property. So I appreciate you sharing that. Sorry, I should do an introduction to Matt. I should do an introduction oh, to Matt. Yeah, Matt's brilliant in that space. Do you know Matt? Perfect. Be good to know. Yeah, no, I've definitely come across him. I remember him from the, since he said Grand Carlin, I was like, I remember his profile picture, but I've, yeah, I've not yeah. met him in my person yet. Cool. Um, perfect. So last two questions. What is one thing, and this will throw a lot of people off, so um, and I'll put a lot of people on the spot. What's one thing that nobody knows about you? Oh, um, <laughs> I don't know. You probably caught me off the spot then. I don't know. Um, Oh, I have a TikTok account. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is more cringe than anything else. Um, don't know. No, I don't know. It could be a habit. It could be a, a story from uh, when you were younger. Like uh, we've had some weird ones. Like someone, uh, the last guy I had on the show, he um, he pretty much said, look, I thought I was younger as a kid and I had a lilt bottle in my hand. Um, and I thought I was drinking milk, but he was actually drinking oil. So, oh, wow. like, so, so wow. it's just one of those things. Everyone, everyone has a different story, a different thing that that nobody really knows about. Is this yeah, something yeah. on your I end? Mean, most people probably don't know. I mean, most people know that I dropped out of uni, but I got kicked out of first year of college. I got expelled first year of college. Not many people what? know that. So I, we used to have these. So um, I was in engineering, and you'd have these. They're like little pipes that you plug into different things and then you push compressed air down them and it makes like an actuator move and you play around with them. And we sprayed uh, deodorant down it and lit it so the entire thing went in flames and about four of us got expelled. Yeah. Not many people know that. Well, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I think we've all tried to blow up the science lab or we've all been there trying to do something to blow something up. So I, you know, I can see that. I can see that happening. Last question. It's kind of a very deep question, but say you've you know you've gone and you've sold this you know the elements of the co uh, co working business. You set up your sort of health techs and you've invested. You've gone and done anything that you wanted to do in your lifetime. You've left your legacy. You've made a difference. You've changed the world, whatever it is. And now you're on your sort of grave. Uh, you're you're just about to die, and you've got a tissue paper in your hand, and someone asks you to write the three truths about life. What the, what are those three truths for you? Three truths. Um, yeah. Change is inevitable, so prepare for it and accept it. Um, failure isn't an option, but it's a process that you can learn from, and you should embrace it with everything that you have. Mm-hmm. And then, um, 
never underestimate the things that actually matter, such as community and family and those around you. And, it, it, and understand that that is the stuff that you sacrifice in building a business. And although there's the short term, but actually you should probably focus on that more. Because I wish that I spent more time with my family over the last five years than necessarily spent in the office. So I think there would be my three truths. That's a very on the spot one. So yeah, I think that would be mine. You're pretty good at answering it actually, because a lot of people uh, struggle with this one. They have to kind of sit back and think about it. So uh, you answered that pretty quickly, which I appreciate. Yeah, I think Again. I mean, the key one for me is accepting change. Um, I, I, most people are resistant to change, and the reason they're resistant is because that they have to adapt. And actually, it, it gives you more of an opportunity. You know, in, in anything that happens, you can then grow, adapt, and hopefully create something better from it. And if you can't, then you can figure out a solution moving forward to be better prepared for a change. Because change is the most inevitable thing that will happen. Nothing will remain constant. You always need growth. If you don't grow, you slowly contract and the business dies or anything that you do dies. You always have to be changing and adapting. And that is the most inevitable thing that will happen. Complacency will kill you. Perfect, perfect. Well, on that note, I appreciate your time, uh, William. How can people find out about you? Cool. Um, so my Instagram is Mr. William Stokes. In fact, most of my social media platforms are that. I'm very active on Instagram. I'm going to launch a YouTube TV series or series on, on my William Stokes channel called Millennial CEO, where I do some of the day in the lives and I take you around some of the developments we've got going on and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Because I always get asked about these pieces and I think it would be quite good. It's more to document it for myself, but it'd be quite good to share it with people out there. And if, you know, if 20 people, 30 people see it, that's a classroom. If 100 people see it, that's an auditorium. It's it, you know, it's incredible the reach that you can have. So yeah, but primarily it's, um, it's Instagram is my main social media platform. As you will have seen, I drink coffee a lot and uh, <laughs> yeah. Powerful. Well, I appreciate your time. Um, no, again, appreciate you. to all the viewers and the listeners, um, this is, you know, there's not many people who I can see from a very young age have gone out, you know, follow through and execute on something. Now, there's a stat that I once saw, only 4% of 18 to 35 year olds uh, are making a profit or a living wage from their business. Um, and this guy's kind of exceeded that point. So, I, you know, hats off to William. And again, there's a lot of advice in this podcast. The reason why we cover such a broad range of topics, because we've got so many questions in life and business. And, and sometimes we need people who we respect to go out and answer them. Um, so... Looking forward to seeing you guys on the next podcast. Again, any thoughts, really appreciate your comments. Uh, and please do share this with everyone. See you guys very soon.